This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. On this special episode of the podcast, recorded in collaboration with CAMPUT, which is the Association of Canada's Energy and Utility Regulators, and the Canadian Gas Association, we focus on rate regulation of the electricity and gas businesses. I'm joined by a co-host on this episode, Tim Egan, the president of the Canadian Gas Association. Tim and I have conversations with Peter Gurnham, who's chair at the Nova Scotia Utility and Review Board, and Robert Gabor, chair of the Manitoba Public Utilities Board. These conversations were recorded in early May 2019 at the annual Camput Conference in Calgary, Alberta. Let's start the podcast with our conversation with Peter Gurnham. So I'm joined by my co-host, Tim Egan from the Canadian Gas Association. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Francis. It's good to be here. Good welcome, to to, opportunity. welcome to co-hosting uh, the podcast, the first co-host that we brought in on our, our podcast. Uh, and uh, as our uh, our first special guest on our, our regulatory special this time, uh, as mentioned uh, in the intro, we have Peter Gurnham. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I thought we'd start off, Peter, uh, and Tim and I will, will kind of do a bit of a two-handed interview here. We'll, we'll swap back and forth. But I thought maybe we could start off if you could tell us a little bit about the organization that you lead uh, and, you know, some, some information about uh, about the, the, the regulatory body. Sure. Um, ours is sort of a super, what we call a super board, and that Nova Scotia being a small province um, really doesn't have a bunch of uh, municipal boards or expropriation boards or things like that. In 1992, they were combined into one board. So we, in addition to regulating gas, electricity, water, and wastewater, um, are the municipal planning board or the expropriations compensation board. Uh, We regulate auto insurance. Uh, We set weekly gas prices. Um, and we actually administer 38 statutes, some of which are fairly minor mandates where we hardly ever uh, uh, receive an appeal, for example, a fire safety appeal. So about half of our time, uh, I would say, in terms of manpower, is dealt with utility work. Right. And the other half is what we call the adjudicative side of our, of our mandates, which are, is non-utility work. And so we have eight full-time board members mm-hmm. um, in order to cover all of those mandates. Um, some of those board members do exclusively what I'll call regulatory or utility work, and some of those board members do exclusively non-regulatory work. And then there are people like me who cross over from one mandate to the other. I like to keep my finger in a bunch of mandates so I know what's going on. And in fact, in my practice, I did, in addition to regulatory work, municipal planning, when I practiced law, <laughs> municipal planning work and expropriation work, so I was comfortable in those mandates. You mentioned you mentioned weekly gas prices. Do you? you I'm assuming it's it's not natural gas prices. You the uh, you set weekly gas prices. We gas do. prices we, at the pump. Both gasoline and oh. uh, diesel. So we do that um, every Thursday afternoon, effective midnight. Right. I can tell you how we do it if you want. <laughs> is it? But is that unique in Canada? No. Um, Prince Edward Island does it. New Brunswick does it. Newfoundland does it. And um, I understand BC is considering it because several people have asked me about it here at the campus meeting. Oh, okay. So it's a. It sounds like it's a. Right now, it's an Atlantic thing, and soon it sounds like it'll be it's maybe the coast. It's going to be a coastal thing. Yeah. There you go, a bi-coastal thing. Okay. Um, so uh, um, the uh, the um, I'm going to just pause this, and we'll come back to it. And just to take a look at the next question. 
Um, you asked me about current initiatives, so I don't know whether you want to talk about that or not. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, let's come back uh, and do current initiatives. Okay. So, Peter, tell us a little bit about some of the current initiatives that, uh, that you've got underway. Yeah, I guess, I guess they're under a, bro- a global heading of trying to improve confidence in the regulatory process. So a couple of projects we have undergo at the moment are um, training our people, including board members, in plain language decision writing. And we've had several seminars on that to try to um, make our decisions more understandable to the, to the general public. We spent a lot of time over the last few years um, trying to improve the efficiency of our regulatory process. Mm-hmm. We have far fewer oral hearings than we had pre- uh, previously. Okay. Much of what we do is what I'll call paper hearings. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I would say 80% of what we now do on the regulatory side is paper hearings. Um, we have developed a fairly sophisticated case, man- case management process, mm-hmm. which allows us to be paperless and also, I think, cuts down dramatically when we do have uh, hearings. Um, on the amount of time in the hearings because there aren't 40 mm-hmm. binders that everybody's trying to find. Right. Right. Exhibit 195, that just pops up automatically. And it also allows um, experts to testify remotely. So, for mm-hmm. example, when we did the uh, Maritime Link hearing, we had experts testify from England. Mm-hmm. We had tes- experts testify from the United States without the necessity of, of uh, coming to Halifax, although Halifax is a great place to come to. <laughs> um, and so I, I think it helps us, and it certainly helps the utilities uh, keep their costs under control and makes things much more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to improve the transparency of our process. Um, we know what we do, but um, often we have to ask ourselves, have we clearly communicated our mandate on a particular matter? Right. And is the process understood? And, um, you know, tell people when they can expect a decision and things like that to yeah. try to to inject some transparency in the process. So those are some of the things we're undertaking. Mm-hmm. So what would you see as, uh, as some of the unique elements um, of, of your organization's um, mission or mandates and, and circumstances? What sort of sets sets the Nova Scotia apart in this space? Well, as I mentioned, we have this broad um, um, array of mandates. And uh, I think that what we learn in the you know, planning mandate can sometimes assist us with the hearing process and the regulatory side and vice versa. So, um, you know, I think I think uh, having the broad mandates gives us a window on efficiencies that we can use across mandates. Uh, our terms are unique. Um, I'm uh, appointed to the board uh, till age 70 during mm-hmm. good behavior. So, <laughs> as most of you know, I've been chair of the board for about 15 years, which mm-hmm. is fairly unique in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I don't think there's another board that has that sort of an arrangement. Um, So uh, that's obviously unique. Um, We have the luxury, and I call it a luxury, of regulating a private electric utility and Mm -hmm. a private um, gas utility. And I think there are peculiar challenges for those boards who have to regulate crown corporations. And uh, we don't have that. one device that has not been used in Nova Scotia, which I'm quite grateful for, is the use of regulatory directives. If, mm-hmm. if government want to uh, amend one of our mandates or um, provide policy guidance to us, it has to be by statute or by order in council regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the minister can't simply write a letter and uh, uh, and suggest what we do. 
another unique thing about Nova Scotia, although it's not nearly as unique as it was, is we have an electric efficiency utility. Right. And we had the first one in Canada called Efficiency Nova Scotia, mm -hmm. whose sole job is to uh, promote demand-side management, mainly on the electricity side. Mm -hmm. Um, Prince Edward Island has now followed us and Manitoba has now followed us right. um, and so we're not as unique as we used to be but um, Efficiency Nova Scotia was established in 2010 and um, you know I, I, th I think um, now understand their work and uh, I think it's generally been a good thing. Uh, another feature of regulation in Nova Scotia is that our Department of Energy participates in our hearings, in other words they they register as a party, mm -hmm. sometimes make submissions, occasionally cross-examine. And I'm not sure how frequently that happens in other jurisdictions, but I think it's quite a transparent process to have the department speaking to the board right. uh, in a hearing. Yeah. On the record. On the record. Yeah. And do they do that? Um, uh, are they obliged to do that in every energy hearing? Or no. How does no, it's work? up to them whether they want to intervene or not. And in many of the routine things, like capital work order applications, they would not be interested in that. Right. Mm -hmm. But certainly in a rate hearing, in the Maritime Link hearing, right. um, in the upcoming demand-side management hearing, uh, which we're having the week after next, um, they register as a party, uh, usually have counsel and some of their staff at the hearing. Counsel sometimes chooses cr to cross-examine, sometimes not. They very seldom um, provide evidence, but often provide argument. Yeah. Peter, you, um, you've talked about some of the the, some of the good things, if you will, about uh, the Nova Scotia Board and uh, what you described as a as a luxury of being able to regulate privates, uh, and uh, and some of the process things you have. But obviously, it's not easy to be an economic regulator. You know, tell us a little bit about some of the challenges, legislative and yeah, and, was, and other that you face. I was interviewed by CTV a couple of years ago uh, about our board and in a fairly wide ranging interview. It went on for about twenty or twenty five. Well, the interview went on for a long time, but they showed about twenty minutes of it. And there was a line which uh, CTV picked up and promoted, and that was that we're paid to make unpopular decisions. <laughs> and, you know, nobody likes it when power rates go up. But um, um, I find if, if you explain yourself, people generally understand. Mm -hmm. um, the breadth of mandates is a challenge, Tim, in the sense that um, we can't control our work. We have right. to do what comes through the door. And if you have two or three major planning matters and a rate hearing and other things going on at the same time, um, it can be challenging. Uh, we've managed it. We don't have a huge staff. Um, we have a staff of about 35, and we do make extensive use of external experts. But our staff are sometimes stretched. But you've got to remember we're a small province, and we don't have the resources that uh, some of the larger provinces have. Right. Um, and... The whole issue of confidence in the regulatory process, in fact, Tim, you and I have talked about this before, but that's a real challenge for regulators these days. I've been on one side or another of regulation in our province for 40 years, and I, I frankly, and it's partly due to the, to the increase in social media and so on, but I, I've, I haven't seen the level of question of authority, and I don't mean just regulators, but uh -huh. government experts and everything else that we see in today's society, and it's partly... I think as a result of some of the disinformation that gets out there in social media, and it's it's difficult to do that. And there's a lot of good initiatives to try to uh, try to deal with that. For example, the Positive Energy Initiative the University of Ottawa right. is undertaking, which I've played a minor part in. Mm -hmm. 
but our last strategic plan, which we, we uh, are still working to implement, the focus of that was to do whatever we could do to try to increase confidence in the regulatory process. As, as part of that, um, you know, you talked about the fact that in Nova Scotia, the, uh, the minister can't intervene with uh, regulatory directors the way it can occur in other jurisdictions. Um, do you find that those kinds of mechanisms that you've got in place, those kinds of, of rules of procedure, have evolved as part of an effort to improve trust and understanding the process? Is that is that fair to say, or is that...? Yeah, although, um, in my experience, um, governments, and I've now been chair of the board, where three different political parties have mm. been in government, have respected our process. Uh-huh. Uh, I haven't felt, um, I can say in the 15 years I've been in this job, inappropriate or undue pressure from government. Right. I'm sure on a day-to-day basis there are decisions that our board makes that government may not be happy with, but um, it it has by and large been a respectful relationship. Um, And for example, in in order to institute that arrangement, the board reports to the House through the Minister of Finance. Um, And the reason reason we do that is the Minister of Finance doesn't have anything that's subject to our jurisdiction. Hmm. And that was done purposely. Um, by government. It wasn't my decision. That was done purposely by government, a former government, but other governments have continued that process to try to preserve the independence of the board. So I, I think it's a quite a mature approach. Yeah, it's interesting. Can we maybe talk a little bit about environment and environmental considerations and sure. greenhouse gas emissions, for example? Do they factor into um, the, the decisions and the, and, and the work that uh, that the, uh, that, that the Commission does? Yeah, well, we have, um, as you may know, um, some of the most aggressive renewable targets mm-hmm. in Canada. Um, by 2020, which is next year, 40% of the electricity sold in Nova Scotia has to come from renewables. Right. And I would say 15 years ago, um, probably 80% of the generation in Nova Scotia was from thermal, right. and most of that was coal. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's been a significant and, to a certain extent, a costly transition to get to where we are. Right. Now, meeting that target in 2020 is contingent upon getting power and energy from Muskrat Falls, yep. which we expect will arrive um, in the spring of, of uh, next year. But it's been a challenge for Nova Scotia Power. It's been a challenge for the board. Mm-hmm. It's been a challenge for the interveners. And it's been a challenge for government. Right to meet those uh, renewable targets in a sensible way. And I like to think that uh, we collect, well, we have, we are going to meet the targets. Mm-hmm. So I like to think we collectively have, have been able to, uh, to meet that target. So what role does the, does the board play? In well, we oversee, mm-hmm. in other words, government sets the policy. Yeah. Um, and we oversee through regulation, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the expansion plans of the utility. Well, we approve the power purchase contracts that right. uh, the utility undertakes. Uh, we we uh, actually set the fit rates mm-hmm. uh, in Nova Scotia, so we had a you know a significant role to play. Right. We we approved um, after two very interesting hearings the Maritime Link, which mm-hmm. is critical to that. So, I think the board's been front and center. Now we didn't set the policy direction, of course. Mm-hmm. We we accepted the policy direction from government as is appropriate. But um, it's been a 10-year journey to, uh, to oversee that. I don't want to take all the credit for it. Um, the utility and others have worked very hard at it. Right. Um, the environmental issue is, if I may say, still a little bit experimental in terms of, of how it's playing out. Um, uh, 
uh, in policy process and regulatory process. So, in a sense, you've you've been operating within a, a sandbox, an innovation sandbox, a regulatory sandbox, and that's the lingo that's being used increasingly um, as regulators and policymakers talk about how we're going to continue to adapt to environmental objectives, new environmental objectives, or changing technology. What are your thoughts on the idea of, uh, of regulatory sandboxes, of, of yeah, driving innovation? Through it's not something process? I'm terribly familiar with. I've read about um, what's happening in other provinces, um, and um, you know there are mechanisms, I'm sure, that will work better some places than others. Um, but I think with respect to innovation, um, we have to you know, to proceed a little carefully. I, I think there's a perception out there that in the past regulators have not enabled innovation. And I'd like to kind of refute that a little bit. I think within our, our uh, mandates we have done that. And I, I'll give you an example in Nova Scotia. We've got a, a feeder in Nova Scotia where we have approved a, a multi-million dollar research project that Nova Scotia Power is undertaking to demonstrate the potential for integrated um, distributed energy resources in the system. So the circuit includes a wind farm, an interconnected wind farm, and at the substation um, there has been installed a Tesla power pack mm -hmm. and then a bunch of uh, Tesla power walls in various um, residential and businesses. So, I mean, that's something we enabled. So that's, that's innovation. It wasn't in a sandbox. Um, but I I think we have to be careful when we're enabling ratepayer-funded intervention uh, innovation to to have a clear goal in mind that there is going to be a benefit at the end of the day to ratepayers. So uh, I'm concerned about risk-free innovation where we take a pocket of money and allow people to uh, to innovate unless there's a clear benefit to to uh, to ratepayers. Having said that, um, innovation properly constructed, uh, I think is a good thing, and it's, some, it's something we've enabled. We haven't done the regulatory sandbox route. That's not to say we wouldn't. We have been asked to. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we have to constantly keep in mind the connection between innovation and lower long-term cost or benefit to ratepayers. Why don't we talk a little bit about uh, um, uh, Indigenous issues uh, and um, Indigenous consultation, engagement, accommodation, um, and how that how that impacts energy regulators? Well, I think it's it's at the top of the list. It's yeah. one of the two or three um, um, major issues, um, particularly affecting our ability to uh, enable public projects that we think are in the public interest. So it's become a very important. Um, dynamic of that, and we're we're uh, obviously dealing with it in Nova Scotia. In, in fact, in particular, with a gas storage project mm -hmm. that uh, um, is is delayed, um, pending sorting out Aboriginal issues. Um, we still haven't. I'm not sure we have the law quite right or straight in Nova Scotia. I shouldn't say right, but straight in Nova Scotia, in the sense that. People think there's quite a bit of clarity as a result of the couple of Supreme Court Canada decisions that came mm -hmm. out uh, last year. But we recently, and I wasn't on the panel, but we recently uh, uh, decided that there had not been adequate consultation um, in a case involving the redevelopment of an electric um, hydro dam on a right. river in Nova Scotia. Um, the province intervened in that um, case and took the position that we did not have jurisdiction to make that finding. We did make the finding. Um, 
which was accepted by the parties and in fact the consultation did take place and the project is proceeding but our decision has been appealed and it's being uh, heard in the next few days by our court of appeal so I think we're still struggling in Nova Scotia to understand exactly um, what our, our role is in this process mm -hmm. uh, so hopefully the court of appeal will uh, give us some guidance but it's still it's not crystal clear what the board's obligation is um, I th also think regulators have to apart from the law sensitize themselves to the traditions of uh, Aboriginals mm -hmm. and so for example we're going through a process of qualifying an eagle feather uh, if you want to uh, um, testify um, we're learning about a smudging ceremony which I've never been to before so I think part of reconciliation is people like me uh, understanding um, the challenges that Aboriginal people have faced over the course of the years and also understanding at the same time what their legal rights are and what that is in our process. And so we're still um, on a learning curve, I have to say, both from a sensitization standpoint and from understanding precisely what the limits of our jurisdiction are. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you feel though about the, the prospects in the future? Do you do you think we're we're moving towards? I do, and, and I've heard some very hopeful things. We're at the Campwood conference, and I heard some very hopeful thing hopeful things uh, at the Campwood conference. Um, um, there was a uh, a chief from BC who described a, a fifteen megawatt hydro or a solar project that's being built in in BC in very um, I will call it emotional terms about how his uh, band. Uh, went on the journey to try to uh, establish this and, mm -hmm. and the process they had to go through. I learned a lot from that. I have to say, I parts of that I didn't understand, mm -hmm. but it may it gave me a better appreciation for um, for the issue. Mm -hmm. um, another big issue uh, for energy systems today, uh, both electric and gas, is is resiliency. And um, there are a variety of contributing factors. Um, uh, the, the amount of economic investment, uh, growth rates of populations, uh, uh, demands on, on uh, respecting sort of uh, uh, social interests, uh, environmental considerations. Can you comment on the role of the regulator in ensuring the resiliency of an energy system, and particularly, I guess, from the perspective of both CEA and CGA mm -hmm. as electric and, 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 and gas people on the delivery side, its impact on the customer? Yeah, well, of course, we have to approve major capital expenditures um, um, in Nova Scotia uh, with respect to, um, um, at least on the electricity side, um, expenditures undertaken to improve um, the resiliency of the system, and, and we are doing that. We had a major storm in Nova Scotia about four or five years ago, Storm Arthur, which was um, a uh, tropical storm stroke hurricane, which did a significant amount of damage in areas it wasn't expected to hit. And as a result of that, the province asked us to uh, undertake an inquiry as to the response um, to, that, uh, to that storm. And quite a number of recommendations, most of which were accepted and have now been implemented by Nova Scotia Power, with respect to tree trimming, um, with respect to um, uh, the location of um, distribution poles, um, with respect to um, storm outage response, in, in other words, informing customers as to when they're going to be reconnected. 
And that led to a subsequent process where um, the Public Utilities Act was, was amended to allow us to put performance standards in place um, to deal with customer service and, and uh, uh, targets, adverse weather response, and reliability standards. So having put those standards in place, we have to enable the utility to, um, right. to, to achieve those standards. And, and, you know, there are capital dollars involved. Um, and there's a fine balance. I mean, you could make the system bulletproof, but at what cost? So that there's a constant judgment you have to make. But there's no question in my mind that the weather, particularly the wind, is worsening in our province. Mm -hmm. And the, the electrical system in particular has to adapt to that. Right. That's not to say that the gas system is more resilient, though, right? We won't we won't actually say that. <laughs> Some of us might think that. <laughs> well, I, I, in fairness, Tim, I, we haven't had the kind of outages in the gas system in Nova Scotia that uh, we have in the electric system. So. You don't have an overhead gas system, do you? No. We don't. We don't. That's why ours stays going better than yours does. <laughs> you have to allow for this witty repartee this, yeah. between the co-hosts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Peter, uh, I want to get your views um, about uh, potential opportunities for um, utilities, both electric and gas, uh, now and, and in the future to work collaboratively to respond to market demands. And the example here would be um, natural gas utility partnering with a, an, an electric system operator uh, on, on power to gas to balance renewable energy um, and using the gas grid as storage. Yeah, I was quite intrigued by that question. It's not an issue that I had considered, so I, I quite appreciated the question. Uh, I'd be quite open to it. Um, I, I don't know exactly how it would work, but in my view, uh, anything we can collectively do to, um, to lower long-term costs for customers mm -hmm. and improve reliability is what we should be collectively working towards. Right. So um, I, I don't know the mechanisms and I don't know how it would work, but if it's the right thing to do, the regulatory system would have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's the way I approach most things. So I'd be very open to hearing about it and discussing it, but it's not a circumstance that's come across my desk. Right, right. One of the things that, that, that I ask everybody that comes onto this podcast, Peter, is I ask them about the books that they're reading. So what, uh, what's, what book are you reading or what book have you just read that you, you think would be um, one that others should be looking into? Well, full confession, Francis, on the way out on the plane, I was reading just a detective novel, the mm -hmm. name of which I can't remember, but uh, <laughs> which I'll forget as soon as I've finished it. The, the most substantive book I've read recently, which was given to me by a friend of mine who's actually a Supreme Court judge in Nova Scotia, is something called The Death of Democracy, which mm -hmm. is quite a startling book. Um, and focused on the United States, but um, traced American politics for about the last hundred years to the point where we've got to the current administration. And, and some of the risks he foresaw uh, with respect to um, um, what's happening currently in the United States, mm -hmm. and some of it may be overstated, but it, it, it was quite sobering. Um, some of what we're seeing today has happened before, right. um, but um, it, it's a book that um, kind of made me think. Great. And then the final final question before we, we go to our, our intermission uh, and and bring in another guest, um, Peter. When you uh, um, when you want to get uh, up to speed first thing in the morning, what are the sources that you turn to to uh, to, to make sure that you know what's going on in the world and, and what matters to you? Well, the first thing I do is, is open my iPad, and um, there's a couple of um, websites I check first. Um, 
and I don't want to promote anybody here, but one of them is the CBC. Um, and then I subscribe electronically to three newspapers, mm -hmm. the Globe and Mail, the New York Times, and the Guardian. Now, I have a daughter in England, who lives in England, so that's part of the reason I subscribe to the Guardian. I'm very interested in this Brexit process. But I, I skim those three newspapers and then kind of look for the articles because I don't have time to read them all in the morning. Mm -hmm. The articles I want to read when I come home at night. Okay. Um, and I do sort of have in the background in the morning, although three mornings a week I go to exercise class, but the background in the morning, the CBC, and I read the Halifax Herald. But I would say my main sources of information are those three newspapers. Mm -hmm. Great. Peter, thank you for joining my co-host, Tim, and I uh, on the podcast. Really appreciated the yeah. opportunity. My to pleasure. Chat. Thanks very much, Peter. That was fun. So for an intermission uh, on this uh, this podcast, our special podcast, uh, I thought I'd just take a minute with my special co-host, Tim Egan from the Canadian Gas Association, uh, and uh, Tim ask you the same questions that I've been asking all of the other guests, the same questions. The first one being, tell us a little bit about the book that uh, that either you've just read or the book that you're reading that you think other people should be uh, should be picking up and leafing through. Well, I don't know if other people should be picking up and, and uh, leaving through it or not. It's called uh, The Time of Stalin, A Portrait of a Tyranny. And uh, it's written by a, um, uh, a former uh, Bolshevik. His, his father was actually one of the founders of the revolution um, of Soyenko, if I've got the pronunciation correct, is his name. Anton is his first name. And um, uh, his father was a victim of, of Stalin's tyranny. And uh, he was himself as well. And uh, it's a bit like the Gulag Archipelago. Okay. Um, so a book. comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very light. <laughs> you know, nice, uh, nice uh, rainy day uh, reading when you're feeling blue already. Uh, but it's uh, mm -hmm. it's incredibly compelling because you know we we know a lot about the evils of totalitarianism in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on uh, in respect to the Nazis, uh, right. we know much less about the communists. Right. Uh, we know much less about about Stalin. Uh, I think in large part because in the end he was on the side of the victors. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the horrors of uh, of his uh, administration were just unbelievable. Right. And, uh, it's fascinating to read. Hmm. And then the other question um, is your sources of information what do you what do you what do you go to to to, uh, to get up to speed and get ready for the day right well I think like um, like many people uh, I uh, I have uh, opened my um, my smartphone and take a look at a variety of, of news sources that uh, that are now coming at me sometimes you think those news sources have identified you before you've identified them the <laughs> they come at you but I scan uh, Canadian US and a bunch of international media, uh, obviously, I look a lot at it from an energy perspective, mm -hmm, sure. uh, but I'm also just interested in politics and geopolitics. Um, so I read National Post, Globe Mail mm -hmm. in, uh, in Canada uh, on the national scene. Uh, I follow uh, in the U.S. Wall Street Journal, yep. New York Times. Uh, in the U.K., uh, I track the Daily Telegraph, Guardian. I'm also increasingly following Australian news because the the the, the issues are very similar to mm -hmm. Canadian issues. Yeah. You've got a large resource-based economy. Yeah. 
uh, with a population spread along a border. Yes. Uh, yeah. A lot of very similar challenges. So it's interesting. I, track I, in. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and there was a speaker from from uh, from Australia, and uh, he was following a speaker from Canada, and he said, "Well, I'm going to use different words, but I'm going to say the same thing. <laughs> you call them you call them uh, wildfires. We call them brush fires. Right. So there was a whole series of things like that. Yeah. yeah. That, that's interesting. That uh, that so you're 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 tracking. Yeah, I just, developments I, it, in Australia. It's just sort of the last well, couple know, of years. And also, you know, we've we've also tended to track developments in the, in the regulatory space as yes. well in Australia. Yes. As a, as a potential indicator. Yeah, yeah, and there, you know, there are lots of overlap between there are lots of overlap between our two countries yeah. on on energy regulation. Yeah. Um, again, uh, similarly situated economies, similarly situated resource economies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same kinds of issues. So it's useful to have a place which is. Know, more or less the same size, yeah. uh, same circumstances, literally on the other side of the world. And yeah. say, all right, what did you do in this case? Mm-hmm. Uh, what can we learn from you? Right, right. And then, of course, it's great to have that sort of rivalry that you can have with them too. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, Tim, we're going to invite our, our, our other guest onto the podcast, but uh, I wanted to take the intermission just to 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 uh, to, to have a, a quick conversation with you. Uh, and I'll, I'll thank you now for, for um, having joined the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on as co-host. Well, Francis, thanks for the opportunity. Um, uh, I don't know if your listeners know this, but you and I have worked together on a variety of issues for several decades, and it's great to have this opportunity. I'm so. thinking we actually should do a podcast about the stuff that we've seen over the last two decades that would in be the very energy cool. space. Yeah. Because, yeah, you're right. Um, we, we've, we've both been in this space for quite some time. We've known each other for, for quite some time. Um, we've dealt with North American issues uh, yeah. in, in all of that time. And we often have conversations about what the future may hold. So that might be a future podcast. Yeah. I look forward to it. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. Robert Gabor, welcome to uh, the podcast. It's nice to be here, Francis. Glad that you were able to join uh, my co-host Tim and Tim and I for for this special podcast on regulatory issues. We wanted to start off um, by asking if you could tell us a little bit about the organization, Manitoba Public Utilities Board. Um, you know the, the, the structure, the composition, the size, and the sorts of initiatives that you've been working on. Well, the Public Utilities Board of Manitoba uh, was established by legislation over a hundred years ago uh, and it was the primary regulator for Manitoba for pretty well everything. Uh, the act as it stands is an old act. I think the last time it was amended in a serious manner was 1960 and if you if you read that act it talks about uh, trams and trains and and telecommunications and uh, all the things we don't do now and it included uh, uh, regulating the price of beer, and it was it was primarily it was pr- primarily a telecom okay. um, uh, regulator. In uh, the late '80s, there was a, a political debacle in Manitoba involving public insurance, mm-hmm. um, where uh, where public insurance rates uh, were dramatically increased in one year. There was public outcry. It, it eventually uh, resulted in a government falling and as a result they introduced a, a new act okay. which uh, which had uh, the public utilities board set rates for uh, for electricity mm-hmm. for Manitoba hydro and set uh, set rates for auto insurance so right now we uh, we gain authority over 
and just counting the acts, 14 acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, our primary our primary rule is to set rates for uh, electricity, natural gas, and public insurance, and as well for water and wastewater utilities. Uh, we regulate all of them except for the city of Winnipeg, mm-hmm. which uh, there's an exclusion in the city of Winnipeg charter, so city council sets those rates. Okay. Uh, otherwise, all the municipalities, there are 240 um, mostly uh, public utilities, some a few private uh, utilities, where we set the rates. So that's sort of the scope of our mandate. Uh, in terms of the structure, we're actually uh, quite small. I would say for rate regulators in Canada and possibly North America, we're probably the smallest. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, nine full-time employees and our budget is $1.4 million. You mentioned that the act is 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 relatively old. Does that does that cause a problem? Is it is it something that that needs to be updated? Um, it certainly needs to be updated. Yeah. Um, uh, statutory amendments are not uh, things that are done easily because it triggers its own process. I I know the provincial government's looking at it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how far down the road they are looking at it, but. You know, for example, one of the um, one of the real deficiencies in the act is uh, our ability to enforce our orders. Um, okay. So, if you go to uh, Alberta or BC, if a utility um, ignores an order, mm-hmm. those provinces uh, have the ability to uh, penalize the utility right. at the tune of a million dollars a day. Mm-hmm. In Manitoba, we have the ability to penalize them at a tune of a hundred dollars a day, ah, which okay. was which causes a problem. Yeah. So, we've 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 created some ways now to to address the issue. Um, I was a practicing lawyer for thirty six years mm-hmm. before uh, before I was asked to uh, uh, become chair of the board, and so for example. Uh, we've introduced um, something within our orders that's that say that if a um, if a utility does not carry out a directive in an order, then we have the right to not process their next application. So that's a that's right. a stick yeah. that that's, uh, that's used, and um, um, the language is very clear now. At the end of our order, if there's a directive, you have to follow it, mm-hmm. or there are some consequences. Um, we don't have the ability to. Uh, I came from a transportation background. We used to call it show cause. Mm-hmm. Somebody say, "Come in here and explain why you're not doing that." The legislation really doesn't allow that uh, in the same manner as it does in uh, in other jurisdictions. So certainly, uh, I would hope to see um, broader powers mm-hmm. in in a revised. Uh, statute. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any other things that you see as, as unique um, in, in the circumstances for... Well, the, uh, I would say that the, the, the unique item uh, relates to Manitoba Hydro. For the most part, the, the Public Utilities Board is dealing with Crown Corporations. Right. So we have one Crown Corporation for energy, mm-hmm. which is Manitoba Hydro and their 
gas subsidiary, Centrigas. Right. We have other smaller players and we have a propane user, but we don't have the sort of the plethora of private sector companies that they would have in, for example, Ontario mm-hmm. or in in Alberta. Right. We have a public insurance company. It's a crown corporation too. Mm-hmm. Our water and wastewater are public utilities. So there's a different approach that's taken. Um, Manitoba Hydro is undergoing uh, a massive capital uh, um, upgrade. Right. They're doubling their capital assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we set the rates. Uh, we don't have the authority to approve capital projects. In other jurisdictions, huh. they do. Okay. We're specifically excluded from that. There's actually a Section 2 Sub 5 of the Public Utilities Board Act that excludes us from doing that. So unless the government issues an order in council and mm-hmm. says, here is what we want you to do, which is in fact has happened a few mm-hmm. times, most recently last year. Um, but otherwise, we will have the utility come to us and say, well, here are our costs. We're building this dam. Here's what it's costing. Set the rates. Right. Uh, we had a major hearing. Uh, it was probably the largest hearing in, in the PUB history last year um, that went 32 days over three months uh, and the uh, government issued an order in council um, directing us to look at capital expenditures but more so uh, requiring Manitoba Hydro to produce whatever documents we requested. Mm -hmm. And I must say they were very cooperative. There were a lot of documents. I mean I think we had 38,000 documents in the hearing. Um, wow. And um, we went through the the uh, the, uh, the major uh, capital project, which is called Kias mm-hmm. Dam, in terms of the decision-making process. Yeah. Um, that's very unusual. Mm-hmm. To have a regulator that can't look at capital projects but is setting the rates for those capital projects, or as a result of those capital projects, is is uh, is unusual. So, in the in the Manitoba construct, who who looks at the capital plans? Well, it's interesting you ask that. It's a good question <laughs> yeah. um, because there is actually quite a bit of confusion. Okay, uh, we would hear people would say they would think that the government would approve the plan in this. Uh, actually, the the board of Manitoba Hydro approves the plan. Okay. Uh, the plan does go to government, not for approval of the capital expenses, but what happens is Manitoba Hydro uh, goes to the government to borrow money. They they borrow money off the government line. Right. right. That's part of it. They get a government rate. They pay the government a, uh, a fee mm-hmm. for using that. Mm-hmm. So the government has to approve... The debt, okay, but not the project per se. Well, the financing we, of the project. We it's it's an interesting question as to what they actually look at. Mm. Uh-huh. They're looking at the project and they're looking in in terms of here's how much it's going to cost. Here's when the revenues will come on stream. So, for example, Kiosk is a project that probably. These are long-term projects started 20 years earlier mm-hmm. in a planning phase. And at the time it starts in a planning phase, 
uh, and I can say this because it came into evidence, we have the Americans saying, you can't give us enough electricity. Just crank out as much electricity. Right. We're charging them seven cents a kilowatt hour. Manitobans are paying three cents a kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. This looks like a great deal because the Americans will effectively build a pro- a dam for us that we right. will eventually use for mm-hmm. domestic consumption. Um, by the time you actually build it, um, we have things like fracking. Yeah, the markets. Oil prices the, the have world crashed. Has changed the world has changed completely. We're in a completely different situation. Mm-hmm. The Manitoba government would not be would would be told, as was the board through my predecessor, the project will cost six point two billion dollars. Here's what we're doing, and that. Well, lo and behold, nobody in the Manitoba government looks at well, how are you building it? What does the contract look like? You know, and, or the gamut of questions that examine. They look at it in terms of a financing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. When we came to the hearing uh, in in eighteen, uh, the the issue was very much in terms of your project just went from six point then six point five billion dollars to eight point seven billion dollars, and there's some uncertainty, and now there's a yeah. question of what happened. Mm-hmm. And you see this in Newfoundland, you see this in BC, you BC. see this in every major hydro project in North America. Uh, Ernst and Young came out with a report, I think, in 2016 that said that uh, 80% of the hydro projects were over budget, and they were over budget by 60%. CDO Institute did a paper on it as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so, and we wanted to find out what was wrong with the system. So, the government gave us an order in council, Mm -hmm. we went out and hired experts, there were independent expert consultants, who testified at the hearing, we spent a lot of money, but they came up with a number of suggestions and and, uh, and, and looked at it. There's never been that thorough an analysis in Manitoba. Right. Uh, hopefully it'll, it will change things here and across the country uh, if people ever want to look at the report. The, the uh, hearing ended up with an order um, that we came out with we were one day late. We we try and have orders within sixty days or sixty one days, but our order is three hundred thirteen pages long, something mm-hmm. like that. So it's a long order. I mean, it's a very detailed, um, very detailed thing. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of Manitoba Hydro, that's you know that's where we are in sort of the 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 gap in mm-hmm. in, uh, in the system. Right, Robert, you. Um you you laid out kind of the environment for uh, for your role in uh, in chairing the board, and you've you've referenced some very specific instances of, of some challenging situations. As you look forward, what do you see as the emerging regulatory and legislative challenges um, that you face as an economic regulator? I'll preface this by saying it's it's interesting when this group gets together can put. These are great people across the country, mm-hmm. and and we get together probably three times a year, and we share stories. and And quite frankly, I have no hesitation of of phoning people across the country, and everybody's forthcoming with information. Mm-hmm. If you're on the outside looking in, 
people look at regulation as this one entity. Yeah. And it is so different between the provinces. Right. Uh, right now, um, I am looking, I'm, we're looking at uh, uh, going to performance-based regulation. Mm-hmm. We're sort of the last bastion of cost of service regulation. We have a modified cost of service regulation. Um, I've talked to BC. Uh, we've met with Alberta. I just met with Quebec yesterday with representative from Regie. Mm-hmm. They're completely different systems. Yeah. I mean, yeah. each of them is different from each other. Yeah. So when you drill down, it's different. In terms of where I see us going in Manitoba, our situation is different because effectively we're dealing with crown corporations right. that are policy driven. So what I would see in Manitoba would be completely different from a jurisdiction like Alberta that has I don't know, 70 utilities and most of them private sector utilities. If I was looking at the landscape across the country, I think that uh, um, things are shifting in the sense of governments are going to have to decide if they're going to want different tribunals looking at different aspects of projects or if they're going to want to merge functions so you have um, a broader scope at a hearing. So, for example, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to have a major project now, uh, we don't deal with the environment. That goes to the Clean Environment Commission. Mm-hmm. They go through their process. And if if I want to, if Manitoba Hydro wants to export, they have to come to us. Then they have to go. So for for a, a, they have the Manitoba Minnesota transmission mm-hmm. line projects. Right. They need approvals from. The Clean Environment Commission, which mm-hmm. they got, then they need to get rates set from us, which means we look at their project. Then they have to go to the National Energy Board um, and get approval from them. Right. So after this process, which could take up to ten years or longer, if if there's um, if there's um, uh, if there are cha- court challenges, you'll have a project. Um, I think the. I think that what you are going to see is, um, from a regulatory standpoint, you're going to see um, the governments having to clarify what the rules are and and how they move forward. So, for example, and there are different ways to do it. Does the Clean Environment Commission have a hearing combined with the Public Utilities Board and have one right. hearing? Yeah. Yep. Rather than have separate hearings. Mm-hmm. On the s- sector side, and I don't know if you want to talk about it now or in a, a later thing, but I'll raise it now. Um, the energy companies, and I will say this as a private citizen, mm-hmm. not as the chair of the Public Utilities Board. Mm-hmm. I did. I started off uh, practicing law uh, as a transportation lawyer, but I also did a lot of government relations, and I did a lot of administrative uh, tribunal work, uh, and I started doing major projects. And I'll just tell you about one fascinating project, which which may explain where I'm coming from. Uh, in the early 1990s, we were looking at building a commercial spaceport in northern in Churchill, mm-hmm. Manitoba, right. 
to launch what were formerly ICBM rockets uh, and turn them into carrying satellites into low Earth Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. And that was the rave. We were going to move away from geostationary uh, uh, satellites, which cost a quarter of a billion dollars, to low Earth orbit satellites, Mm -hmm. which go uh, 100 miles up in the air uh, and... um, and cost anywhere from $250,000 to $2.5 million. And you would have this uh, uh, network of these small satellites. And the person, the people behind the project, the first project was Teledesic, was uh, a fellow named Craig McCaw, who owned McCaw Cellular Communications, Mm -hmm. and um, Bill Gates, who everybody knows about and they were going to instead of having the internet through cables they were going to do it with these satellites and the first uh the first um uh, project was motorola's project called iridium Mm -hmm. everybody's hot to trot there are thirty-five thousand people in the industry worldwide and we were going to be a relaunch center so what happened was 10 percent of the satellites go out every year and we needed a process they need a place to launch from quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was part of a group, uh, and we um, we were looking at this. And uh, I have to say, this was other people. I was actually on a royal commission at this point, so I was sort of out of commission for about a year and a half while this went on, and I came back. But the project was written, uh, was led by a dynamic woman named Javon Mullen, and... Uh, the first thing our the, the two consultants who were helping her said was, um, you got to go up north and meet with First Nations. Mm-hmm. Well, she was looking at the financing and the engineering, you know, but they said, but you have to go up there and meet the First Nations. This is year one. I mean, she's, you know, she's uh, from the U.S. and doesn't know what, what's going on, but mm-hmm. to convince him. And she went up and went to um, Rankin Inlet. And she flew up there and flew in all of the leaders of the First Nations and talked to them about the project. And um, luckily, I guess, unluckily, but luckily, they had a snowstorm. And they were snowed in for an extra two and a half days. Mm-hmm. So she spent two and a half days talking to them. And at the end of it, she said... We're going to launch. We're going to launch rockets. There are pieces going up at the launch vehicle. We know exactly where they're going to go. We can make sure that they don't go anywhere where the caribou go. We will pick up all of the parts. There will be no garbage. Um, we can limit damage to the environment. There will be some jobs. Not talking hundred. Here's what we're doing, and then she said to them, "You need to decide whether we can go ahead or not." Because if you say no, quite frankly, we're not going to waste our money. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they said yes. And then what happened is we were working on, she was working on the financing and the design. We were using Raytheon engineers and constructors out of Denver, and we worked on the environmental part. And we had an enormous number of meetings mm-hmm. and did all of the environmental work. And we put together a technical advisory committee, which was all the 
federal government and provincial government regulators. And the normal game, game for projects is you say, this is your jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. This is your jurisdiction. I'm not giving you anything outside your jurisdiction. Right. Okay? And you get into the battle. And I was there, and we had, I think, 14 five-inch binders. And we brought them all into a uh, hotel um, meeting room. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, at the then Weston Hotel in, uh, in Winnipeg. And said... You know, the normal game is you do this. You're all the regulators. Each of you is getting all the binders. You do with it whatever you want. We're not playing this game anymore. Mm. We built credibility. We created the system. And we, the company started going. Now, the sad part is the entire industry collapsed because what happened uh, was... Um, we were ready to go. It's 1997. Yeah. There's the Asian flu. Mm -hmm. There was a worldwide economic crisis in Asia, Malaysia, Indonesia. They all go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. um, uh, James Rubin is the Treasury Secretary, and um, he uh, he it takes him about a year to to uh, calm everybody down, and things are going. We go back to the the. Uh, financial institution we were using in New York that said there's no problem. I mean, everybody loves the project. You'll get the money. And we went back and said, okay, we're ready to go. And they went, quote, well, um, you're not sexy anymore. Small satellites aren't sexy. And I mean, I was on the phone call. What do you mean it's not sexy? Well, there's something else that we've discovered where money's going into. What's that? dot-com companies. <laughs> and they shut the industry down. Yeah. 35,000 people out of work. So it's a brilliant idea. That's a long-winded story or something different. The way that companies proceeded before was the wrong approach. Mm. 20 years ago, I was talking to people and saying there are four aspects to major projects. Mm -hmm. There's financial, there's engineering, there's environmental, there's Aboriginal. Mm -hmm. You keep focusing on financial engineering and have the checklist that go environmental and Aboriginal. Checklist, right. Right? The two things that can kill a project mm -hmm. are environmental and Aboriginal. Right. Mm -hmm. right? You can always come up with more money. Mm -hmm. You can always change the design. Re-engineer. Mm -hmm. If you don't deal with this properly, if you don't treat them respectfully, if you don't go to the First Nations at the outset of the process yeah. when you're just at the infancy. If they feel that that you're not listening to them, mm -hmm. they will tangle you up in courts for the rest of your lives. Yeah. Now, I'm not that smart a person. I don't understand why other people didn't see that. Mm -hmm. And so if you're talking about the regulatory system, I think that one part is the regulator, the other part is... The applicant, and I think that what you finally seeing, and it took twenty years, is applicants are seeing. You know, we actually need to sit down with the people who are going to be affected by this at the outset and talk to them honestly. And I'm not talking about a veto mm -hmm. or requiring consent. 
that's that's a different matter and you know and they're different that's on a spectrum but i'm talking about having the consultation broad consultation at the outset not at the end do you feel that that applicants get that now do you feel that there's a good understanding of that well, in terms of indigenous relations gee take a look at the pipeline projects yeah um I bet if you went back to TransCanada or Enbridge or Trans Mountain, they wish that they could start over again. Because the comment, uh, Martha Hall Finley made the comment in the session about the lack of trust. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these projects are based on trust. Mm. Um, if you can establish the trust, um, then I think that you can move these things forward. And I think that's the thing that's been missing. The problem is people are looking to regulators to fix the problem yeah. or make the decisions. The problem is that there wasn't the trust between the parties. You know, yesterday I, I moderated a session and I said, you know, we can't even agree on the facts. Well, we need that's the, that's the starting point. Yeah. When, when we had, going back to the Spaceport Project, so we had to get an environmental license. I mean... We're building a facility to launch rockets. Mm -hmm. I mean, we call them, we, we would refer to them as launch vehicles because mm -hmm. that's a nice way to get away from the idea that you've it's got. ICBMs. Yeah, you've got ICBMs. <laughs> you know, and quite frankly, I went to Moscow and the people we were dealing with were people who designed mm -hmm. nuclear warheads. Right, yes. right. But yeah. now we can reshape the cone sure. for the satellites. But we, so we spent two years doing environment, answering questions, doing studies, meeting with the, 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 uh, our, our working group. We didn't have a problem with them. We make the application to Manitoba, and the, I wasn't the lead lawyer on the environmental side. The lead lawyer was on vacation, mm -hmm. and I met with the government with our lead consultant, and I remember saying, um, you know, and, and the way it works is you publish it, and then people can file objections. Mm. And in Manitoba, there was an informal rule, which is often what happens with government, which was called the rule of five, which is if you had five objections, the director of licensing would refer, refer to it, would refer to a hearing, public hearing. So we went to the meeting, and uh, the director of licensing, who viewed himself as being the, the person there mm -hmm. to save... Yeah. the people of Manitoba right. and the associate deputy minister and we're there and he says I'm ordering it to a hearing which was very disappointing mm -hmm. um, you know we would have gone through the whole thing but now you have to hire more experts and get the whole thing right. and he's going to a hearing and here's the scope of the hearing and I was going how many objections did you get and I, I mean we were very careful people would phone us if they, even if they want to support it, say, mm -hmm. you can't talk to us. You have to talk to the government. We're completely clean of this. This is a separate yeah. this is a separate process. And how many objections did you get? He said, well, that's not the point. I, I have the discretion to order a hearing. How many How many objections? <laughs> and he wouldn't tell us. And finally, this, the associate deputy minister said, how many objections? None. Hmm. I said, nobody sent you anything? He said, well... Quite honestly, we got 21 letters of support. 
And the associate deputy minister said, you got your license. But it's because we spent two years establishing the relationship yeah, right, right, right. rather than have, oh, guess what? We're going to launch rockets and it's going to come down on your head. Yeah. We showed them We showed them exactly where the mm-hmm. landing zones mm-hmm. were, where separation was, and the whole thing. And I think that's, I think there there's going to be the push to that. Yeah. That the applicants are going to say, you know, we need to sit down with the First Nations. Right. We need to sit down with the environmental groups. Even if they won't agree, try and establish what the common facts are so that you have an understanding at the outset. So how um, how have those insights um, either uh, helped or, or um, uh, impacted the work that the, that the board does today? Maybe just to pick a specific yep. area with respect to um, Indigenous peoples, because I know okay. there's, there's been some 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 interesting work and, and some unique actions that the board has taken in that space. Right? Yeah, the when I when I came on board, um, I'm a big believer in public consultation. I actually did one of the many dumb things I've done is I. I was a volunteer for five years and, and did the urban capital, uh, sorry, the urban the capital, sorry, the urban transportation plan for the capital region of Winnipeg, which mm-hmm. is Winnipeg and the 15 surrounding municipalities. Right. And when I did that, the government said, okay, um, you know, we expect you're going to have your report here in two years and go through all these things. And I said, um, it's going to take me two years to do consultation. Mm-hmm. And they didn't understand it. I said, well, you know, the the issue isn't when you start a report and when you finish the report. The issue is when do you start a report and when do you actually implement the recommendations? I said, if you have lousy consultation, your report's going to be shelved. Yeah. If you have good consultation, yeah. the time from when you conclude the report and when you implement it is, is much shorter. Mm. Anyways, um, and we had that that. Uh, until that point, we had the largest consultation process. Uh, because with consultation, I mean, people don't understand. A, a lot of times people confuse public relations for consultation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Consultation is you don't know what the goal, you don't know what the end game is going to be. Yeah. You start it, you, it's building blocks, you get to a point, and then if the consultation is proper, quite frankly, your result is right no matter what the result is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For far too long, people in industry, governments viewed it as public relations. Okay, you know, we need to do this. Okay, well, let's go talk to the people. Yeah. So prior to my getting involved, the thing that drove our task force was the city decided to build this bridge, huge bridge, no consultation. At the end of it, they said, here's the bridge. People hated it. It's nothing unites people other than an ugly bridge. They went back, you didn't do any consultation. City said, you're absolutely right. We'll do the consultation. They did the consultation. The result of the consultation is they got the same ugly bridge. <laughs> That's not real consultation. Right. As you said before, just checking the box. Just checking the box. Yeah. So when we when I came to the board, mm-hmm. um, and, and I must say, we have a phenomenal staff. They're, they're small, mm-hmm. but everybody works very well together. Our board, which I have the dream board. I mean, mm-hmm. they are finest people, different skill sets, they're all part-time. I'm the only full-time board member. Right. Brought everybody together. 
And what we did is we really wanted to push the consultation. So in, in terms of First Nations, the board prior to me and after I joined really wanted to get more First Nations involvement. 15% mm -hmm. of the population, all the hydro projects are in First Nation lands. Yeah. Um, they were the ones who, who suffered from the building of the projects. The, the other thing we did is, um, and this is to the credit of uh, our executive director who did this way before I was there, uh, we've gone digital, we live stream all of our hearings. Mm -hmm. So everything before us, if anybody files anything, it goes onto our website. You can look at orders, transcripts, right. exhibits. If you have insomnia, that's the place to go. <laughs> um, and we're trying to get the public more involved. I mean, when we had our last hearing, we had 2,300 emails mm. from people who not only sent their comments, but put their their names and email addresses. Right. In terms of the hearing, um, we had uh, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs put forward a proposal for a First Nations residential class rate. Until that point, they were part of the residential class. Uh, we heard the evidence. Um, you know, the... the President and CEO of Manitoba Hydro testified in the uh, opening days, mm -hmm. uh, and Manitoba Hydro has has um, established relationships with the First Nations. They have a limited partnership with First Nations that are actually building right. the Kias Dam, and he talked about it's absolutely, um, and I can't remember the exact word he used. Um, it was either disgraceful or, or something to that effect, what their, what their conditions are okay. up north. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, mean, I mean, the living conditions. The living conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. First I mean, Manitoba Hydro, I think even the interveners would agree that they've taken enormous steps to work with them. And if you, if you work at Kiosk, anybody who's there, the first, first thing you do is you spend two weeks, um, having uh, a course on on Aboriginal culture and history mm, that, mm -hmm. before you touch anything, no matter what it is, that's right. what you do. Yeah. Um, but we had uh, we had a lot of evidence, uh, and the board uh, the board was looking at the issue of rates, especially the big project, and the board had uh, a proposal for a bill affordability, and there had been a working group started with Manitoba Hydro and the interveners that had worked a number of years on bill affordability. We'd looked at it. Uh, we were concerned about rising rates, especially in terms of what happened in Ontario, mm -hmm. where people were greeted with, you know, we can either feed our children or heat our house. We can't right. do both. So we had recommended to the government that they establish a, uh, a bill affordability program. And we said that as a first step, uh, we are moving to a separate rate for uh, First Nations residential class because based on Statistics Canada, 96% of the people, First Nations, were under the poverty line already. Mm -hmm. So in terms of bill affordability, they would automatically qualify. 
Um, and we looked at it very carefully. It's, this is First Nations throughout the province, just not just in the north. So it's mm -hmm. not some, it's not a geographic, uh, uh, benefit. Uh, and we ordered it for the first year. And now the matter has been brought before us. We ha have another, yeah. we've just concluded a hearing. And one of the issues there is, um, is uh, whether we continue it or what we do with it. And I certainly can't tell you what, what we will decide. Sure. We're still in the middle of the decision-making process, but we established a rate for residential people living in First, uh, in First Nations. So, but is the issue, um, is, is the issue the price that people are paying per kilowatt hour, or is it that we have poverty? That's about, I mean, I mean, I've, I've had this discussion with a couple of other people as well when talking about well, it know, depends. energy poverty. Do we want to, you know, should we be addressing poverty? Well, I think actually that's what the bill affordability rate is trying to do because okay. what it would do is it would, it would establish a means test for people who are paying more than a certain percentage of their, of their ah, take-home pay. Gotcha. So the standard is if it's 6% or 10% of net income and if mm -hmm. you're over that, Mm -hmm. You're considered to be energy poor, mm -hmm. um, which is what they've what they did in Ontario, what the wind government yeah. did yeah. a little late in the game, but yeah. that's what they did. Um, so we've gone. We ordered it in the the first uh, hearing um, after the first hearing. Yeah. Um, Are you the first jurisdiction that's done something like that specifically for uh, First oh, Nations? Yes. Wow. Yeah, and uh, people don't like it because it's considered to be discriminatory. And there is an aspect of it that is in the sense of we have people who are living in reserves and across the street are literally across the street are people who are poor yeah. who don't get the benefits. So what happened was in the last hearing, we issued an order where we raised rates on average 3.6%. And we said for the First Nations, it was, it was 0%. And... Um, what we, I guess we didn't highlight was what the actual cost was. So the actual cost at that point, um, because you're spreading it, was uh, about a dollar forty a year. Mm -hmm. So other users would have their rates increase a dollar forty a year right. to to right. to do that. Robert, you. Um noted four things you think about for big projects um uh financial engineering aboriginal environmental um those are four uh, those are four things that the applicant needs to right, think of as right, a regulator yeah. we don't look yeah, at environmental you know, course, because right, the course, clean no, environment right, right, does it, but yeah. i but i mean as well, one one is going to think about in terms mm -hmm. of yep. big projects and the and the first two well one can adjust and 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 the the last two are in a sense, variables that you're responding to, and so you need to be engaging on them. You've talked a lot about about the kind of engagement on on uh, on Aboriginal affairs and how important it is. Is it the same thing on the environmental side, or is it different? Because is the constituency does the different constituency make the engagement different on environmental issues than it does on Aboriginal issues? I think the I think the well, it's interesting because much of the Aboriginal is environmental. Uh huh. Okay. Because they have, I mean, First Nations people generally have concern about the earth. So they will have uh, concerns about the environment and the same issues as environmental 
concerns. Where there's a difference is that for the most part, you can identify the First Nations people because the pipeline or project is going in their area. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to identify the environmental uh-huh. group because it's so broad and with the internet and social media, they come from all over. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, um, uh, the in Manitoba, we have a, had, have a transmission line called Bipole 3. It was supposed to be on the east side of Lake Winnipeg. There were concerns about First Nations and environmental issues that ended up on the west side of Lake Winnipeg. Well, the thing that really drove it on the environmental side was Bobby Kennedy Jr. came representing the Sierra Club and got right. all the things, and all of a sudden there was this thing. He flew in, yeah. he flew out, and the issue's still there, and it's, who, who are you dealing with? So I think that realistically the environmental situation is um, uh, is really difficult now, yeah. and, and it is litigious and all that. I think that... You know, quite frankly, if the util- the uh, utilities or the applicants, the energy companies, met with the environmentalists right from the outset and said, here's the project, mm-hmm. here's what we're planning to do, do you have any suggestions on how we could improve this? Mm. You then change the onus to the environmental groups who are either going to say... Um, Number one, um, you know what? We don't care because we don't we don't want any projects, mm-hmm. which is not what they say. Or they say, well, you know, if you move the line here or if you move the line there, we would have less problems with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, not as a regulator, but an outsider, Trans Canada Pipeline wanted to build a building line. You know, Keystone was going down and it was going through. Uh, I'm trying to remember, Nebraska, and they said, it's going over our aquifer, change the route. They said, no, can't change the route. We spent all this money, can't change it. Goes to court. They lose. Lo and behold, they change the route. Hmm. Well, you know, I think there needs to be a lot more work up front on those issues. And you can identify the issues. You can identify the parties uh, and and, uh, deal with it uh, at a much earlier stage. In terms of actually building the projects, um, and the and what what is done so far, we really haven't experienced those problems. Um, so, from what we've seen, uh, we, we just need to focus on the actual maintenance aspect and, and things of that nature. There's a lot of money they spend. Their budget on an ongoing basis is about five to six hundred million dollars a year, just for upgrades and mm-hmm. and, uh, and things of that nature. I think what that what you'll see in Manitoba is once kiosk is online in about now it's 2020, 2021. It was supposed to be twenty twenty one. Now it looks like twenty twenty. You're going to see a lot of other older projects. Uh, uh, not relied upon mm-hmm. and I think that's where the focus is going to be we we have a lot we have a number of s- smaller projects and there's going to be a, have to be a closer examination whether it's worthwhile 
keeping those or mm. whether we want to focus on uh, on the larger projects. Right. right. So one of the questions that I ask everybody that comes onto our podcast is uh, ask them about the book that they're reading or the book that they've just finished reading that they think people should be opening, cracking the covers of. Okay, so um, I'm one of these people who reads paper, except now I've had to shift to electronic because Mm -hmm. I'm finding it harder to read paper. So the electronic book I'm reading is uh, an old book by uh, Ron Cherwin, who wrote Hamilton, and he's one of the best biographers in the States, and it's a book on uh, John D. Rockefeller. Oh. Which, quite frankly, Jeff Bezos read. Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, or I think Jeff Bezos read because... <laughs> he's follow- Well, he's following many of the things that Rockefeller <laughs> did in terms of the way you build up a company. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm reading Walter Isaacson's book on Da Vinci. Yeah. Um, I've read uh, most of his other books. I just finished a biography. I finished, I think it was Isaacson's biography on Benjamin Franklin. I've read that one, yeah. I don't read fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife reads fiction. As she said, I only read books that are about a 1,000 pages long. So um, <laughs> I quite frankly um, read books on vacation or during the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the year, I, I'm reading journals or right. studies. Uh, it's uh, I just... Unfortunately, I don't have enough time mm-hmm. to uh, to read what I enjoy. But I I primarily read histories, fiction. Uh, sorry, histories, biographies, and political books. Right now, if you want to know the best book I've read, and I still remember it, notwithstanding it was about forty five years ago. What's anybody the best? want? Yeah, it is a book by Robert Caro, C A R O, who's known because he's written five books on Lyndon Johnson, yeah. uh, on Robert Moses. Hmm. Robert Moses was the person who created the Triborough Transportation Authority in New York mm-hmm. and built all the roadways and all the bridges. Hmm. I was going to say there's still a Robert Moses Bridge in New York City, I believe. Mm-hmm. Robert Moses set it up. R- Robert Moses, interestingly, started, he was a lawyer, as a legislative drafter. He drafted the bill for the authority, including the appointment of the chief executive officer, and under section something like 660 sub this, sub that, um, the chief executive officer could only be removed by the governor of New York. Ah. So he had incredible power, and at the time that New York City was facing bankruptcy in the 1970s, the Triborough Transportation Authority was sitting on $10 billion cash. (laughs) He's the one who put the bridges mm-hmm. and the roadways specifically through the areas where African Americans lived, and he specifically um, didn't like that rich people owned Long Island, and he wanted the public to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, but he designed the bridges with ten foot clearances because the buses needed eleven feet. Gotcha. Right. Uh, fascinating character wow. for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and uh, that's a book I still remember. But if you read anything by Caro or mm-hmm. Cherwin, or it's a lot of a lot of great stuff out there. So. Mm-hmm. so, final question: um, What are your sources for for information? Um, what do you what do you go to 
to, to... You mean general information? Yeah, when you start your day. What, what are they, what well, are they? I get up usually between 4.30 and 5 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I go to the gym about 6.15 in the morning. In between, I go on... I read the local newspaper yep. in paper because it gets there about 4.30 in the morning. And then I read four to five newspapers online. I mm-hmm. scan to see what's going on in the world. Um, yeah, and that's how I start the day. Uh, and I finish the day watching the television news Great. just to see what's happened. Robert, I want to thank you. I thank you, Tim, as well for co-hosting. But, Robert, thanks for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very really much. Interesting. Yeah, it was fascinating. Thank that's you. your time, Robert. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor. An edited transcript of these conversations will be presented in the ERQ, the Energy Regulation Quarterly. This publication is a forum for discussion and debate on issues affecting regulated energy industries and is sponsored by the Canadian Gas Association and the Canadian Electricity Association. You can find it at energyregulationquarterly.ca. I hope you will tune in for future episodes of the Flux Capacitor podcast. And I invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.